I am excited uh, to be here with you this morning uh, as we begin week five of our journey through the book of 2 Timothy in our series, Passing the Torch. Uh, Today we're actually going to be finishing up chapter two, which means that we are now at the halfway point. So congratulations. Um, (laughs) For those of you who might just be joining us, this, this book of 2 Timothy is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, to his young friend Timothy, as you might have guessed, uh, who was the lead pastor of a church in the big city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a a large, influential Roman province in Asia Minor. And Paul wrote this letter while he was chained to a wall in a Roman dungeon. He was awaiting execution, probably for preaching the gospel. While he waited, though, he wrote this second and final letter by way of discipling Timothy from prison. We've really been looking at that word. Discipling simply means helping someone else to love and follow and exemplify Christ. And I really appreciated how Pastor Jeff made this distinction and this emphasis last week. It's an emphasis that I've been intending to make throughout this series, but he said it much better than I. See, Discipling, helping someone else to love and follow Jesus, includes helping them to adopt the same passions and priorities as Jesus that they would exemplify Him. That this is the fullness of what it means to disciple someone else. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing with Timothy throughout this letter. Timothy and his Church members are in a tough spot. See, not only is false teaching beginning to affect the church in Ephesus, but the same persecution, the same suffering uh, that Paul is experiencing and and, and the Christians are experiencing in Rome is making its way rapidly toward the city of Ephesus. It's advancing into Asia Minor. And so in order that Timothy and his church members would stand strong during this time, Paul urges them, urges Timothy and a couple weeks ago, to remember Jesus Christ. Remember the Gospel. Remember that Jesus reigns. And by His cross, we have been forgiven of our sin. And by His resurrection, we have been granted assurance of everlasting life with Him. Stand strong in this by remembering the good news. Remember Jesus Christ. Paul urges Timothy and Timothy's church members in Ephesus to keep their eye on the good news because it's from the Gospel that they will receive the strength to endure these difficult days that they are experiencing And it's by the strength of the Gospel that will enable them to continue discipling others, selflessly investing into others, that those others would invest into others, and so on and so forth. So I'm grateful to Pastor Jeff for his wonderful sermon last weekend as he showed us from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14-21 through that in order for Timothy and his church members and, and us subsequently, to rightly stay focused on this gospel, we must avoid getting entangled in fruitless, speculative disputes with 
false teachers, if you will, opponents of the gospel, non-believers, so to speak. Because these fruitless arguments really just serve as a distraction to us from the truth, and they distort the truth to those around us. But when we do keep our focus on the gospel as we ought, refusing to be drawn into these endless, frivolous quarrels, we're not only strengthened for the life of Christianity and the work of ministry, but we become usable vessels for honorable work in the hand of the Lord, as we saw unpacked last week. This is what we learned. And in fact, this is largely what we will see in this morning's passage. We're going to be zeroing in on, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. So go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles there with me, and we're going to just jump right in as Paul continues his exhortation to Timothy to avoid getting entangled in these frivolous, fruitless arguments especially arguments with those who are tampering with the truth of the Gospel and leading many people astray. So let's jump right in. Let's start in verse 22. Paul to Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his guidance in this time. Father, would you illuminate this passage to us by your Holy Spirit? to the glory of Jesus Christ. We desire the work of the Trinity among us today. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, mutually glorying in each other. God wrangling us into that glory as well. Lord, illuminate this passage. Let us celebrate, Lord, the salvation that we have. Lord, let us pursue righteousness this day. And Lord, let it be an effectual pursuit, Lord, that enables others to see the gospel in us, that they may come to a knowledge and be granted repentance and forgiveness and salvation themselves. For the lost who are among us, Lord, those who haven't responded to the gospel, would you save this morning? And would you sanctify us in Jesus' name? Amen. <clears throat> Well, a couple years ago, uh, I was in the dentist chair uh, waiting for the dentist, go figure, to come in and tell me how many cavities I had in my mouth because there were plenty. And, and it was a hot summer day. I had shorts and a t-shirt on. And so for those of you who don't know, I have a pretty massive, substantial tattoo on my left arm 
of King Jehoshaphat and the great battle of 2 Chronicles 20. So I'm in the chair. The room is relatively full. There's a couple of hygienists and even some students this day uh, in there watching this uh, cavity spectacle. And the dentist comes in. He goes, oh, wow, you know, what's that tattoo all about? And I said, well, it, it, it was taken off guard, but this is the battle between the tribe of Judah and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meonites. It's, it's from the Bible. And while the dentist is wrangling all of his supplies, he, he doesn't skip a beat. And he says, oh, okay, so it's one of those stories in which God condones genocide. What do you do with that? <laughs> I, I, I'm as awestruck recounting the story as I was in that moment. All of a sudden, I needed fluoride and something to rinse my throat with. Anyway, I, I didn't know what to do. You can call it discernment in the moment, but it didn't take a rocket scientist to tell that my dentist wasn't really interested in engaging in fruitful dialogue. He wanted to stir up a bit of controversy. And in Luke chapter 20, a group of religious leaders known as the Sadducees do the same thing to Jesus. They ask him in front of this big crowd, they say, Jesus, suppose a woman who has been widowed multiple times throughout her life is resurrected. Which husband will she be married to in the resurrection? Seems like a fair and honest question, an opportunity for some fruitful dialogue, but... If we know the historical context just a bit, we'll know that the Sadducees and all their followers did not believe in a resurrection. And the purpose of their question was, in fact, to trap Jesus in a frivolous, endless dispute that would distract him from preaching the gospel and thus distract those around from hearing it. This is precisely the sort of situation Paul is continuing to warn Timothy about in our passage this morning. See, not only must Timothy avoid civilian pursuits, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, he must also avoid civilian disputes. If he wants to live and minister rightly, he must avoid them. And, and, and in the strength and, and grace of Christ, as Paul started chapter 2 with, so what we see this morning is that Timothy and his church members must put off the temptation to engage in fruitless quarrels by putting on the righteousness of Christ, by putting on the faith and love and peace of Christ, which results in patient kindness and this gentle teaching towards everyone especially those who oppose them. So essentially, when we are faced with opponents who don't really want to engage and hear the truth of Jesus, what we can do instead with our conduct, rather than being sucked into a quarrel, is display, we can show them the truth of Jesus by putting off the temptation to go into combat and putting on the righteousness of Christ. When we're faced with opponents who don't really want to hear the gospel, we can show them the gospel with our Christ-like conduct. 
not being shaken from our focus on the gospel, not being dragged into controversy, but simply loving them with Christ-like kindness and patience and gentleness. Now, there is no substitute for articulating the gospel. It's through hearing. But in the meantime, if we're not given an audience, we can demonstrate it. We can display this gospel. It's the gospel made visible. What a relevant word, I think, for those of us who uh, work with unbelievers, maybe combative unbelievers. What a relevant word to those of us who go to school with, with people who don't believe the truth of Jesus. What a relevant word for those of us who are married to unbelievers. Though they may want to quarrel, we, because of Christ, can stand our ground confident in the truth of the gospel and immersed in our pursuit of Christ-like righteousness, making the gospel visible throughout the process. And God may, in fact, as we see in today's passage, choose to mercifully save them, granting them repentance as only a sovereign God can grant and faith and forgiveness and redemption. So this is what this this passage today, it's really a continuation of what Pastor Jeff led us through last week, but but this this is where Paul is going. He's telling Timothy and us that this is how we can endure the suffering of opposition and false teachers and persecution when it should come, and this is how we can be used as honorable vessels to win others to Christ in the process. And he, he essentially gives us three, three ways. Number one, these are my points this morning, put off combativeness. Put off combativeness. Number two, Timothy, put on Christ-likeness. And number three, pray for contriteness or contrition or repentance in those around us. I like alliteration, so I stuck with contriteness. <laughs> I don't know if that's grammatically correct. But those are the three points we're going to be sailing uh, under from, from here on out. The title of my sermon, as you'll see in your bulletin, is The Gospel Made Visible. So let's look at number one. Timothy, put off combativeness. Verse 22, flee. That's a strong word. Flee youthful passions. The Greek word that Paul uses for passions is epithymia. It means sinful desires. Passions are sinful desires. And in this case, Paul qualifies it with with the youthful prefix. So it's Paul's instructing Timothy to run from youthful, sinful desires. Now, Anyone with two seconds worth of thinking over this it, it could, could, could land on the fact this could certainly be referring to sexual desires. It, it, it can't be overstated how basic and how important sexual purity is to following Christ. But given lar- uh, uh, Paul's larger train of thought in this part of the letter, youthful passions probably certainly alludes to a hot-headedness a quarrelsomeness, a combativeness that is often associated, no offense, with blossoming young adults. Can I get an amen from any parents of teenagers in this room? (laughs) 
I mean, my parents must have been so blessed on my 13th birthday when all of a sudden I knew everything about everything. And I was prepared to argue about everything. This is the youthful passion that Paul almost certainly is referencing and telling Timothy to flee. This youthful passion, here's a, here's a definition of it, is the insatiable craving to fight and to be right, to be the victor, to elevate the self, even in matters of relative unimportance. Youthful passions is the lust of the ego, and it is hazardous material. The devil, Satan, who was once an angel of the Lord, was cast out of heaven because of this epithemia, this passion, this sinful desire to be elevated above God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because of this epithemia, this desire to be elevated above God. It is this same satanic passion that is work in every is at work in every fleshly human who lives in combative disobedience to God. We read it this morning in, in, in the confession of sin. It is this same satanic passion, epithemia, that ensnares Timothy's opponents in Ephesus, according to verse 26 of today's passage. We've been ensnared, captured by the devil and this spirit of epithemia. And Paul is saying to Timothy in no uh, abstract language, run. Put off combativeness altogether. Flee from youthful, the youthful desire to pridefully engage in senseless disputes that lead you away from the very gospel that saves you. He echoes it in verse 23 and 24. Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant, and that word servant certainly highlights a pastor in this context, but includes his congregation. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Oh, how differently the church might look in today's world if we could only embrace this command to have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. After all, the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome. Think of all of the quarrelsome blood that has been spilt by Christians on Facebook and Twitter, especially during election season. It's kind of funny. It's also super condemning. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a, a dispute about spiritual matters, such as whose husband you know, will be in the, in the resurrection. Think of all the political conversations we engage in at work. Think of the Republican versus Democrat debacle that many of us get itchy palms. We want to jump in and ravage someone. Healthcare and immigration, the definition of marriage, all of these things are super duper important, but they often serve as catalysts for inciting youthful passions, sucking us into endless disputes 
with people who don't love Jesus and therefore they don't share the same worldview as us. We, we, we think they should be on the same level of, not level of thinking, on the same page. And they're not. They don't love Jesus. Students who are here, I know we have students in the room, think about the youthful passions that are stirred up in lunchroom gossip and locker room chit-chat. Heck, many of us adults have turned sports into a breeding ground for foolish and ignorant controversies. Have we not? Just go to a Little League baseball field in the summer. Look at the, the, the quarrels and the distractions that Christians are engaging in. This might sound cheesy. It, it is. But it's also truthful. I think it's fair to say that many of us Christians have become too willing to die on lesser hills because we've taken our eyes off of the hill of Calvary where Christ willingly lost to give His opponents victory. A quick note of distinction. Paul's command to avoid senseless disputes does not mean that we never engage in serious debates. Senseless disputes and serious debates are two completely different things. Paul was very willing to confront people when the gospel was at stake, and most of the time it's people in the church. For instance, the Apostle Peter. Paul confronts the Apostle Peter in Galatians 2.11 because Peter had seemingly forgotten the sufficiency of Christ's work alone on the cross and he had gone back and resubmitted to Old Testament eating rituals. And Paul was like, dude, party foul. You're disbelieving the Gospel. There is a difference between senseless disputes and serious debates. And so if you're here and you have opportunity to, to jump in on a hopefully respectful and kind and gentle conversation about the gospel, don't throw it into the category of senseless debate or senseless dispute. Some of us need to get a backbone by the power of the Holy Spirit and actually confront people with the gospel from time to time. There are different things we're talking about here. Paul is urging us and Timothy in this passage to put away the sinful impulse to get entangled in arguments pertaining to lesser matters of importance. Lesser than our justification before God. So what are the endless arguments that you are prone to engage in? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring them to mind right now. What bait do you too easily take at work or at school or at the gym? Have you become entangled not only in civilian pursuits, but civilian disputes? What topics get you the most fired up with youthful, sinful passion and the desire to quarrel and win? And I guess questions that would follow, are you confessing these things to your Paul? Are you warning about these things to your Timothy? Our sinful passion is, is dangerous. Paul uses the words with the Colossians in chapter 3, put it to death. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, epithemia, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is actually coming. 
And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, Christians, we must put them all away. It's not enough, though, that Timothy merely put off combativeness. That's the first part. It's, it's, it's not enough that he just merely stopped being so quarrelsome. Paul's command to flee youthful passions in 22 is accompanied immediately by the command to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. In other words, point number two, Timothy must put on Christ-likeness. Because Timothy's own moral ability will not be enough to keep him from the quarrels that distract him from the gospel and weaken his faith. And so he must seek the Lord, it says, along with others in his Christian community there. He must immerse himself in the Scriptures. Paul already covered that. Rightly handling the word of truth, as he mentioned in verse 15. Timothy doing the best he can to present himself to God as one who has been approved. And he has been, past tense, approved. The paradox of the pursuit of righteousness is that Paul is encouraging Timothy to pursue something he already has in Christ. Do we see that? Timothy possessed the righteousness of Christ when he first believed the gospel. Romans 3 covers this in flying colors. And yet Paul still urges him to pursue what he possessed, never in order to earn God's favor, but because he has already received God's favor. That is the major distinction we have to make. And this is why we Christians must strive. There's nothing wrong with working hard to be in the Word daily, working hard at prayer that we might prayerfully pursue the righteous perfections of Christ that have already been given to us in Him, pursuing His humility, His obedience, His trust towards the Father, His love and patience and peace towards those around Him, especially those who opposed Him. And our pursuit of the righteousness we've already been given will keep us focused on the one thing that saves us, the gospel. It will produce in us the qualities of Christ Himself, the result of which is not more quarreling, as we see in 24, the result of which is gentleness and kindness and patience towards everyone, including our opponents. The things that we're superficially trying to do in our own effort to look more Christian. The power is all within our seeking the kingdom and His righteousness first. Because of Christ's perfect life in our place and His perfect death, which He accomplished as our substitute, You and I are free to walk in this righteousness today. We are free to put on Christ-likeness. And Paul urges us to do so. Look at the communal aspect along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In CG, with your Paul, with your Timothy, with your family, pursuing Christ-likeness. 
When was the last time you confessed to anyone the areas of your life that do not resemble the righteousness you've inherited? Do we have a culture of confession here? When was the last time you asked your Timothy to check on you throughout the day to ask you if you've been working by the righteousness Christ already has given us, working to put to death the worldly passions that are trying to creep up into your heart and distract you? When was the last time you approached someone from your community group telling them the specific pursuits and disputes that most often entangle you? Asking them to pray with you and for you that they might hold you accountable in the pursuit of righteousness. This is what we get to do together. When was the last time we memorized specific scriptures that addressed specific passions that we struggle with? Do we see church that it is to our joy and strength and endurance that we live in the righteousness that Christ died to give us? And when we do, the good news we preach also becomes visible naturally. As Timothy pursues Christ-likeness, Paul is confident that the qualities of Christ will increase in him. And that when the false teachers and opponents see Timothy, they'll see the very gentleness and patience and kindness of Jesus. The very kindness that Romans 2.4 says leads sinners to repentance. So when our primary concern is no longer about winning an argument, but being like Jesus. We may lose the argument, so to speak, but by God's grace, we may also win a soul. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. That directive would have primarily been given to Timothy as the pastor of the church, but certainly applies. We should be gospel fluent able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness. The the second half of verse 25, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, hallelujah, and escape, hallelujah, the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We should, point number three, pray for contriteness for those around us. See, there's a lot more at stake than merely just avoiding a foolish controversy, right? Timothy's opponents and our opponents are not just spiritually misguided if we accurately believe Scripture. They are dead and blind. As we all once were before God's Holy Spirit applied the truth of Christ to our hearts and gave us eyes to see. And I thank God for Jesus as I read this passage and as I think about the prayer for contriteness and contrition, repentance. I thank God for Jesus who perfectly embodied today's passage. He fled the same youthful temptations that you and I are faced with. He never gave in to them. 
Although he is God, he did not consider his godhood a thing to be exploited while on the earth. He made himself lowly. He took the form of a servant and he still fled the youthful temptations to engage in our frivolous quarrels. He put it off. He put off combativeness. And instead, he walked in the perfect holiness, the perfect faultlessness, the perfect righteousness of God. (coughs) Scripture says he grew in wisdom and stature, pursuing the righteousness that was already his innately by nature. Pursuing the Father in prayer, pursuing the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. He operated in the complete faith and love and peace of God with complete patience and teaching and gentleness and ultimate kindness that led to his willingness to lose his life for the benefit of us, his opponents. He became the sin of the false teacher. He became the sin of the insolent opponent. He became the sin of this blind, hot-headed fool. And he paid the penalty in full on the cross as we sung this morning. If you are a Christian in this room today, if you have come to believe that Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death in your place was all that is needed for your forgiveness and that his triumphant reaction, uh, resurrection is proof of the eternal life that you now have with him, how can you and I not desire to put on the same Christ-likeness and kindness toward our opponents? How can we not desire that? Praying for their contriteness as Jesus prayed for yours and mine from the cross, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. They're blind. They know not what they do. When God's people flee their youthful passions in favor of pursuing His righteousness, and and, and when God's people put on the patience and gentleness and kindness of Christ, and when God's people pray that the blind and lost opponents around them would be granted forgiveness, Not only are we freed from the perilous distractions around us, but we're strengthened for endurance and discipling, the whole point of the letter thus far. And then we get to be used, as Paul wrote last week, as honorable vessels for the glorious salvation of those who once opposed it. It's on this note that I will transition our thinking to communion. Let what I've just shared ring true that if you are in Christ, if you have believed that His perfect life was lived in your place, His perfect death, He died for your sin in your place and He rose again calling you to everlasting life in Him. If you believe that, then don't you know that you were once an insolent opponent and that from the cross He cried out to the Father by His own atonement He was making and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Glorious grace. And if you're here and you've not responded to that good news, 
that was very much for you to hear this morning, I would implore you to respond. Give Jesus your faith. Say that, tell him that you trust in it. Tell him to, that you believe, but to help your unbelief. And, 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 and join the chorus of the saints. Uh, this morning as we celebrate the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and the bread and the cup, uh, let's confess the frivolous, distracting civilian pursuits and disputes that we're so prone to. Let's ask for His forgiveness. And let's receive the forgiveness that He promises to pour out on His body. Hallelujah for that. If you aren't a believer here, I'd ask for you to respectfully abstain from the table. Uh, this is for the church. And uh, if, well, we'll just we'll leave it at that. Please, instead of taking communion, take Christ this morning. Let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the ushers forward at this time. Uh, there's, there's just nothing on the planet, Lord, that we would rather be talking about and celebrating than the wonderful good news that Jesus saw it fit to come and rescue sinners. Thank you for this plan that was made manifest in his coming, but that was, again, planned before the foundations of the earth. This wasn't plan B. It was plan A, that your glory might be seen in fullness. At the, at, the, at the intersection of justice and love on the cross. Lord, let us look upon the cross now as we celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us, Lord, and let us receive the forgiveness, God, that comes when we repent. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.